Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Welcome to today's episode of Standout Life. If it feels like it's been a while in between episodes, then it actually has. It's been a few months since I've put an episode out on this podcast platform. And I want to take a moment before we jump into today's guest, who, by the way, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. But I wanted to share with you first a little bit about why there was a break, uh, what's been going on for me, and one of the realisations I've had about why these conversations and the stories that sit within them are so important, and therefore why I will continue to keep putting out these podcasts for for you, uh, for myself, and for for the the invitation to step into some of the the insights and the stories that you hear through these conversations. So for me over the last few months I had needed to carve out some space and time for both myself and my family and I was very fortunate where I was in a position where I've been able to do that and I've had people around me to support me and to support the business while I did take a little bit of time away from that. And I realised when I took that time that I was actually following the advice of many of my guests on this podcast about creating space for yourself and to really come back to the things to, that that matter. So for me in that time, it was honestly about staying at home, being around to drop the kids at school and pick them up, to get into a really healthy way of eating, to have moments where I would actually do things that fill me up. Uh, I also spent quite a bit of time hiking and out on the trail. So that again, that connection for nature and being able to have that time was just, has been so refreshing for me um, and certainly much needed. One of the things I have realised in that space is just how powerful connections are and the stories that we share with each other when we are curious, when we are vulnerable, when we are honest, when there is laughter, then often insights happen. I also have this absolutely fundamental belief that everyone has a story to share. And so with that, I will absolutely be continuing this podcast. We will continue to find incredible human beings, incredible people that are doing amazing things in the world that also have doubts and fears and face life that is messy and sit in the uncertainty and we will dive into those conversations and those questions openly. So I'm ready to get back into sharing some of the stories that I guess emerge as a product of being able to do this podcast. And and as as avid listeners, I just want to say I'm so grateful, I'm so thankful for your time, your attention, the way that you continue to, I guess, share with me and reach out about how meaningful and insightful some of these conversations really are. And today's episode is going to be no different for you. My guest today is someone whose story and pursuit I have wanted to share with you all for quite a while now. Alex Stewart is the author of Low Tox Life. Her book was published last year and it continues to occupy bestseller shelves in bookshops not only all around Australia but all across the world. 
She is the founder of a thriving online education hub by the same name called Low Tox Life. The website is full of goodies. It is made up of several e-courses, recipes, articles, and plenty of community action resources about what it takes to live a low-tox life and the impact that can have on your environment, on your relationships, and in particular, on your health. Alex is also the host of one of Australia's highest ranked podcasts, particularly within the health category. It is also called Low Tox Life. So I absolutely recommend get the book, get onto her website and tune into her podcast. Alex's drive is contagious. And in this episode, she shares her unique career path from being Australia's best bartender of all things to how she now gets into the work that she does, advocating heavily for low-tox living. Alex provides practical strategies that you can put into place today and genuine lived experiences that she shares with other people. And these become the trademarks of her vivacious and contagious style. Alex is an educator, a change agent, an author, a columnist, a speaker, and a consultant at the forefront of a movement that is non-judgmental, but also tough on a system that got us here, that we can't continue doing what we're doing, but we need to be the essence for change into the future. Please enjoy the wisdom that is absolutely woven into this episode as I sit down with the beautiful Alex Stewart. Alex Stewart, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be here. I am actually buzzing. Uh, this has been a long time coming, but <laughs> I has. think it's going to be worth the I wait. Think, I think we're second time lucky, so we're we all are good. second yeah. time lucky. But this is going to be the best one yet. Oh, I totally believe. I say that every time I do a podcast. I'm like, oh, this is my favorite chat yeah. yet. <laughs> so good. It's like choosing babies, isn't it? It, is. when it totally is. Learn yeah. something different along the way. Mm. There's a whole bunch of stuff we're going to dive into that I want to unpack with you around your own experience as well as some of the things that you're bringing to the forefront in the conversation around health, well-being, um, tough questions that we need to ask along the way. But I'd love to start with your beautiful book, Low Tox Life, which came out in June last year, was um, very quickly number five in Booktopia on the list. It is a bestseller in mm. Australia. It's been reprinted a number of times, I want to say. Six, we're on to seven. Wow. It's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so no doubt you've received a whole bunch of feedback because of that. What are you finding that people that is resonating most with people? Do you know, I think the conversation around caring about our planet has been one, quite intentionally from a political standpoint, has been one that has shunned people who do care about the planet and the environment to the fringes as sort of crazy environmentalists. The word crazy has often been used. And I just think when I woke up about all this stuff, I just think that is lunacy. It is basically really shit succession planning. If you think of the world as a business, and a lot of people listening today will be business owners uh, or work uh, quite high level in uh, successful businesses. And, you know, you would never sabotage the future of a company. So why the heck are we sabotaging the future of our species health and of our planet? And so that might sound really heavy. I love to go heavy like three seconds into a chat. (laughs) That's my hallmark and then we ease off. But I think what has resonated with people is 
that the book is a very loving and empowering conversation and a very common sense approach. It appeals to our basic sense of values as human beings and then gets us working from that very basic place of, okay, is this good for me? Is it good for the planet? When I make my choices for the shopping basket, when I make my choices about how I'm going to furnish my workspace, you know, all the questions we start to ask ourselves, if we have a metric of, is this good for us? Is it good for the planet? then it doesn't mean we're not going to be um, economically sound. It doesn't mean we can't be profitable. It doesn't mean we can't have fun. It just means we think about decent succession planning. And I think that's that little switch has come on for people, but they haven't felt vindicated, ashamed, made to feel guilty. I always say, like, I did not know this stuff. And it, we do ourselves a disservice in how fast we can turn things around if we spend too much time feeling guilty or angry about what we didn't know. Way better is to get really excited about something cool that resonates and to think, I'm going to change things about the way I do them in the future. And I think that's that's very much the tone that I run everything we do by at Low Tox Life and, and very, very intentionally made the book extremely positive for that reason. I wanted to change this angry, crazy environmentalist idea that that you had to be that type of a person, um, who is fictitious, by the way. They're actually just lovely people who care about the planet and they were all along. But to actually start to realise it's in all of us and it should be. And it's that, I mean, I love the the sense of succession planning. So who's next? Whose hands are actually exactly. taking that on board? Yeah. But it's also not a mutually exclusive conversation of what is going to happen in the next 50, 100 years um, globally, so not just in our own backyard, to what am I doing for breakfast? Mm. And that what you, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that actually the both can happen in the same yeah. decision, in the same process. Really interesting that you brought up and I was thinking about it even in the lead up to this conversation that guilt is often, so often associated with these kinds of conversations because, mm. um, you know, people change behaviour through pleasure or pain and it's often the pain of, well, we're doing the wrong thing. We should be better. We should be doing it wrong. So it's almost the shaming mm. that then comes oh, look with at diet guilt. culture. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. yeah. Was there a moment where you, I guess, realised, or has that always been part of the intentionality to lean into this conversation more with love and that approach around when we know more, when we can understand more, we can move more um, to actually shift away from that sense of guilt shame, burden, should. Yeah. So it's an interesting one and it kind of found me that that was the best way. Uh, I remember starting the Golotox e-course, which is one that takes, you know, we take everybody through every single facet of daily life and help them reduce environmental toxins and make better choices for people and planet. And that was 2014. And I honestly thought when I started that course and the way I wrote the course the first time, the first draft, if you like, because you're always improving these sorts of things, you would know that. And... uh, I really thought I was welcoming people into a space to get them motivated to make healthier swaps for people and planet. You know, better shampoo, better uh, toenail polish, all the things. And what I noticed when 380 people signed up for that first round was in the Facebook chat group, the panic that descended on people when they realised that the things they had been doing or choosing or buying weren't the best choice for their kids, especially. It was especially mums and especially thinking, oh my gosh, what have I been putting on my baby? 
um, because that really wakes up a piece of us that... Um, it's a whole nother level of oh, guilt, right? It's a whole nother <laughs> level of guilt. And I thought, I don't want people feeling like that. And so it was like a baptism by fire in psychology, funnily enough, and a, a, a realisation that in my own personal teaching style across two different industries, cosmetics and um, um, hospitality before health and wellness, that I intrinsically cared very much about the journey of learning being a positive one, the journey of learning being empowering and about a sense of developing literacy around a subject in an excited way instead of, oh my gosh, everything I've been doing is wrong. So I very quickly realised I needed to pepper that language through everything I did to create the kind of result I wanted for people. So it was really the last the last five years have been a cultivation, a, a refining of making sure that everything feels really exciting for people instead of, um, I don't want to do this course because I know I'm going to uncover a whole bunch of crap. You know, when people see the testimonials for the book or the course, it's always around, oh my gosh, I feel so excited to change. Like no one's freaking out and because we shouldn't be. That's the past. It's done. And uh, so, yeah, I think it was a very conscious choice from that first e-course to um, change the messaging around doing better. And there's, that's power and that, I think that's a powerful message for anyone listening, whatever message they're kind of mm, sending it totally. through, whatever their platform is, is to be thinking about how can we then have an invitation where the energy is great, I can't wait to actually step in. If I'm doing this change over here, where else is uh, the next impact? I know, right? Everything's so fear-based. Once you go positive, you start to realise how so many of us on a daily basis are scared into action, uh, politically or at work, threats, you know, nanny state rules and all the It's like, oh, gosh. And, you and know, it works. Like yeah. it works for a period. Uh, Certainly it works has to sell things load. too. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, marketing and, mm. and those kind of avenues. Before we get off your book, I want to come back to, obviously it's been an absolute whirlwind for you. What have you, what has it meant to you personally to to bring this book to life? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I think I'm still very much in the, the thick of the frenzy of it all, given it hasn't even been a year. I don't know what that looks like for sure yet, but what I do know is the ability to connect with people that I might never have reached in my own efforts to build community uh, through social media or the blog or the email list uh, has just been amazing. And also on the book tour, you know, when you tour a book, you meet people who may have been following the greater efforts of Lotox Life for a while, but you have also quite new to it and have just read the book and are coming to hear you speak. And to just be able to look people in the face who have been directly impacted by your work is, I, I actually don't know how to react to that. <laughs> I'm humbled, flawed, kind of freaked out um, and extremely grateful that I get to do work that helps people live better lives. Um, that, that's that been profound. That I did not expect to just literally have goosebumps nonstop. I can imagine that would be almost a side effect that 
you mm. wouldn't have seen coming. And for anyone that has gone down the path of writing a book or those that are thinking about it, writing the book is often the very, very first it's, phase. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then getting it on shelves is the next phase and then it's a whole nother game. Yeah. And when you talk about kind of book tours and getting out and about and I can yeah. imagine. And just seeing how, uh, you know, everything from, like I was in Gundawindi, which is outback Queensland, New South Wales, some people might say, depending on which side of the pub you're standing on. And, um, you know, these really remote areas, Caratha, up in northern WA, um, right through to Melbourne and Sydney. And what I love is communities come together and we all are there caring about the same stuff and seeing how in the very different environments in which we live and work we can make that happen and still make change happen. And it's so inspiring. I think the remote communities are extra inspiring. They organise better they, you know, they collaborate better. We can learn a lot about bringing some of that spirit into big cities, I think. They know how to do community and you just have limited resources and you've got to figure it out and you've mm. got to get along and you've got to <laughs> talk and connect with each totally. other. Want to follow that thread around community because obviously that is a big been a big part of your business and mm. even in the lead up to the book, even well before the book came about, uh, what you offered in this message around people and planet health and well-being was actually pulling together a community of people. And the method and the methodology was around online education. So how do we actually start to inform people? But I think certainly for what I've seen on the on the outside, uh, the magic that sits behind it has been that community voice, that people are part of that and in that together. What what have you learnt around communities and I guess building a community through, through that process? Because your community is huge. Yeah, it's like, quite big now. It's massive. We're a pretty cool force to reckon, be reckoned with. Um, what are the numbers? Like, what are we... Uh, we're talking about uh, 65,000 on Facebook, 30,000 on Instagram, email list around 25,000. So, yeah, it's it's there are a lot of us and a lot of us... And the more of us that join the party, the more I think we can really change stuff. I mean, we have created a green beauty market over the years uh, since the blog started and since many other people have been starting similar communities. So uh, we can, I mean, we can reduce single-use plastics by getting thousands of people on petitions that would otherwise perhaps, if not given um, the vehicle of a great community, known what to do to have a voice in certain topics. And what I've found is a lot of people join the community because the people around them don't give a poop. Yeah. (laughs) And so they are craving like minds to not feel silly or like I call it lone hippie syndrome where you're the only person in your family and friend circle who cares yet. And I use the word yet because I think we're all going to get to a point where we have to wake up. So it's just a matter of time. Uh, and uh, and so the strength of that community is really, really powerful because they become each other's people. And, you know, Brene Brown always uh, talks about how the single most difficult thing you can do is to do something in opposition to your tribe. 
And so when you are this dark horse in your circle and then you find other people that feel that way too, it cements community in a like turbocharged way. And I've seen people then take friendships offline, start co-ops together, um, you know, start a school canteen business. I've seen so many incredible examples of community that start online and then come offline and become real life friends. It's, it's just amazing. And I think that the power in numbers adage is definitely true and people see, oh, wow, like Alex has put up a petition. I know I'm a part of 65,000 people here. So yeah, I'm going to sign that thing because if we all do, something might happen. So my little action now, exactly. I can see yeah. the shift and change. Yeah. I think most people li- listening and I want to say most people on the whole want to do good mm. and they want to do of right. Of And so um, what I can see, and again, um, from the work that you do is you provide a vehicle for for that voice. Yeah, that's right. Have there been things that you've learnt around, I guess, creating, um, being a part of that community over yes, the years? definitely. I learnt really early on that black and white thinking doesn't serve humanity uh, because you would see them stand out really, really... Uh, in a in a big and quite um, what's the word abrasive way, if I can use that word, when a black and white thinker joined a conversation, and nothing is black and white. I, I hate to break it to you, there is no better. Come on, yeah, I, I just know, want I know, just I know. Give me the answer that guaranteed the work. Well, just you know, you look at people who choose veganism for environmental reasons, for example, and then they haven't considered regenerative agriculture can actually speed up soil regeneration with the use of animal farming faster than any other form of farming. So there's nothing black and white and neither person is choosing something wrong there. We're just operating from a place of personal belief and preference from what we know right now. But to not accept that there are other sides of a coin um, doesn't help us all move forward because we spend too long fighting about who's right. And, uh, And so what I've consciously cultivated was a constant reminder of the, that, that we all actually thrive in the grey and uh, it, we all find common ground together if we play in the grey area of things and there's a lot more acceptance and love and uh, ability for people to understand different points of view when we accept that nothing is black and white and, uh, and I just I love that that has been another, again, sort of accidental realisation early on in the piece, but as soon as I realised it, a real driver for why our community just doesn't have trolls. I think I've banned, I could still count on two hands, having a Facebook page for eight and a half years, how many people I've had to ban. That's huge. On on a 65,000 person base. Just to give you an idea, uh, I've refunded one student in the courses and we've had over 5,000 students. So, you know, if you really, really consciously create a culture in your community, people know very quickly whether they're right for that community or not. And I think people really feel very, uh, very drawn to it or or they get drawn to a more... um, defined kind of black and white community and that's okay. That's That's just not what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I Mm. think the power of that intentionality as you go into it, as you say, then people then self-sort. They're either, they're in, I'm all in and Mm. this is the place I want to thrive or actually I'm really clear that no, that's not it. It's it's somewhere else Or they go find their extreme 
dietary type, you know, keto community, vegan community, like all those communities, that's fine. But that's just not what we are. And I think the sooner you own the type of community you are, um, the the sooner you can actually uh, really build authentic communities where people enjoy showing up. So mm. you're an educator at heart and there's a, I've got a bunch of questions in a moment that I want to ask you that I think you will be able to share and listeners will be able to put things into place straight away. But I'd love to unpack your story a little bit more. So even starting with that community, because uh, that is massive numbers and, and yes, it's kind of a big following. Uh, how, how have you navigated a 24-7 requirement, because mm-hmm. often a community requires that from yeah. the voice. So on a personal level, how do you navigate that for yourself when there's a passion and a drive, but it can come at a cost mm. sometimes? Absolutely. I think it's one of my greatest learnings, still very much on the learning curve of, is how to show up for my community every day, but create boundary at the same time so it doesn't take over my life. And uh, I remember one of the reasons I started the courses in the first place was because I would be up until like one in the morning, two in the morning, answering uh, Betty about what the best kettle was and Janine about, you know, what kind of shampoo is good for frizzy hair. Like crazy. And because you care like, and oh you know. Oh my gosh, this is not sustainable for me. And so um, I, I wish there could be 10 of me just literally just hotlining all day. Hello. Yes, of course. You know, But it doesn't work. Until and, we get that. <laughs> mm, until we get that, you need to develop effective one-to-many uh, solutions, I think. Otherwise, you do as an expert or someone who's researched a lot of things in a particular area, you do become the go-to. And that can end up meaning that you don't achieve what you want and need to achieve to have your own soul fulfilled. Like I could stay with the beginners forever and just help people get on their way and choose their shampoos and conditioners and kettles. But, you know, where does that leave time for me to make a documentary film that I really passionately want to do? You know, things like that. So the courses were the kind of the first phase of that. Then developing uh, an autoresponder on our um, inquiry address that points people towards certain bits of information, explains how I'm just one person uh, and, uh, and, and so forth, and to encourage people to join the courses or um, come and chat in our Lotox club where there are a lot of people who've done all the courses and people then um, provide really great advice from a good knowledge base and it's not just me. And then, uh, and then the next phase, I guess, of that is to launch the Lotox Method coaching program, which we're going to have in a couple of months, where I'll have 20 women from around Australia and um, overseas become highly skilled coaches uh, in their own right in these subjects who will then be able to help people in our communities but also be able to serve their communities better because I start getting asked to, you know, can you come to Walgett and do a talk? Can you come to all these tiny little places? I would love to. I would love to. Don't get me wrong. But you have to realise at one point um, what you are capable of doing is a far bigger one-to-many uh, thing. Like I really feel that that's why I'm here to just keep stepping it up and keep educating on a bigger scale, which is why the book was a beautiful stepping stone. A film's going to be another stepping stone. And, uh, and that means unfortunately that I just can't do the one-to-one stuff. But then my responsibility in the space is to try and create 
better educated people who can then become one-to-one people. So succession planning, back yes, to that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So mm. your own and, and how, how others are doing that. And I love, again, that t- intentionality of how c- I can serve the community better when I have those boundaries, when yeah. I'm really clear on what that next piece and have the space in place. Yeah. Did you read uh, Oprah's book, um, Things I Know, This I Know For Sure? Yeah. It's tiny little one day, like over the Christmas holiday kind of thing. But I remember she had a moment like that where she was helping, you know, giving a fiver to this person and helping that person and like, and realised, oh my gosh, I'm actually doing a disservice to a greater mission here by staying so high touch right here and I can help way more people if I step it up. And it's a, I think I feel really uncomfortable about that. I've been high touch my whole life, but I also know I have to be brave and do what I know I need to do. Yeah, because even when you said that, what came up for me was almost the discomfort of the 10 minutes. And I know Brene talks about that, right? Mm. It's like the, you either live with the discomfort for the 10 minutes of saying no or the regret of saying yes and and Mm. giving too much of your time and sitting up until 2am every night, which is then costing other parts. So it's hard and really important to kind of keep at the forefront. Mm. Now, you weren't always doing this. No. This hasn't been... Oh, my gosh, no. <laughs> total Can accidental Can you share a little bit career. more about uh, other careers that you've had? Other yeah, so had. I was one of those kids who had no idea what they wanted to do out of school, uh, other than perhaps be a hip-hop dancer or a tennis coach. Those were the two things on my horizon. So of <laughs> and course, I wish you'd combine the two. I know, right? That would have been interesting. <laughs> But it meant that I then did a Bachelor of Arts, good old arts degree, uh, and I I majored in European political science because I really love uh, political history. I think applied history is something that we're so not doing right now. Uh, And I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to, to look at that, maybe become a diplomat. But then I found out for women in the 90s that that would mean living in some seriously questionably scary countries for many years still single okay. and uh, that, that that wasn't really my vibe. So I just kind of got a, a, a girlfriend of mine. Uh, my nickname was Dr. Alex at school. I was always the big recommender. I was always the person who people would come to me. They'd be like, what do you do for this? Or what have you got what, that does that? And I would always be that person. So it's no shock that I then uh, recommend on a grand scale now. And where do you think that came from I, for you? Look, I don't know. My dad is a very much an enthusiast at heart. And uh, he loves helping people in, in, oh, let me help you with this or, you know, what you need is that, you know. So I think I got some of it from dad. Um, but, yeah, I, I uh, that would be my only clue as to where that came from. I but think. clearly it's part of that nature Definitely and that common thread in my nature. university. Yes. Absolutely. So a girlfriend of mine said, why don't you just work in cosmetics? You can recommend colours and lipsticks and all the things. And I was like, yeah, that'll be fun until I figure out what I want to do. So I did. And I worked for a beautiful couple of um, prestige makeup and, and skincare and perfume houses. And then because I was really successful on the floor, they promoted me to account exec and then I was key account manager and then I was running the... Um, Australia, New Zealand, French Pacific uh, region for certain duty-free accounts. I worked in duty-free because I had that French language. I'm half Frenchy, and uh, so I'd travel to Tahiti. You know, I'm 22 years old in, on, in business class, and I still remember. <laughs> tough, yeah, tough. I know it was crazy, <laughs> but I really was just an enthusiast. So those people often just get promoted beyond understanding whether that's something they really feel called to do. And I remember very specifically becoming a negative person for the first time in my life 
about two years, three years into that role. And uh, and I just couldn't figure it out. I was like, why am I bitching about work? This is so not me. I love everything. I love life. I, this is this is really foreign to me. And then I thought, wow, maybe I'm not meant to be here. And I had just started singing again and was performing with a few people on a particular Thursday night uh, um, outside of work time. I thought, what if I could be a singer? And I just had this huge quarter life crisis where I just threw it all in. You know, I was on fast track to be a CEO by 30, for sure. If I had stuck to it and stayed motivated, there would have been no issue in achieving a goal like that. But I just was, it's almost like I became allergic to it. So I got the heck out of there, started singing in nightclubs, much to the delight of my parents. Did that as, feel like a courageous decision it, at the time or was it more just a, it just, as you say, I had to, I became allergic to it? It felt involuntary. It was like I just, there was no other decision to be made than yeah. to leave. And, uh, and of course, once I was singing, you have a few hours between sets here and there and during that time, the bartenders would like make me little drinks or try, you know, I'd get to straw test a new cocktail they were working on. I thought, oh, that looks like fun. And uh, and clearly this singing gig only makes a few hundred dollars a, a week. So once you've been used to um, a really good salary, uh, to just sort of like have that pulled out from under you, you start to realise, oh, this isn't very sustainable. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up bartending. And then I bizarrely, a few years later, became the best female bartender in Australia. <laughs> just so random. <laughs> Tell me that journey. Because like, <laughs> uh, Do you know, it, it's really funny. The whole way that happened was I love... I love becoming technically great at something that provides a high service. I think that's the common thread in everything I do. Uh, So I loved having technical knowledge around plant actives and and all these sorts of things. So I could help that woman who was recovering from illness have the best day of her life and have a pampered facial and all this. So then with drinking, it was this amazing way of being able to create and craft cocktails and serve multiple people at the same time. I just loved the mental uh, challenge of that, especially, you know, high-end cocktail bartending. It wasn't like flaring or anything like that. It was actually just making really decent drinks with, with good Beautiful products. Beautiful products. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and to just be able to host people in that way really, really pushed my buttons. And the way I ended up becoming one of the best at the time was because cocktail competitions became a thing. So you would craft a cocktail and then you would have to present it. Now, I had been presenting facts, figures, spreadsheets, budgets, and all these sorts of things in a corporate environment for years before. And all these poor dudes <laughs> literally just kind of wandered around from bar to bar for a few years and jo- joined cocktails. So they were much greener around the professional aspects of... The line, the uh, singer-entertainer. Yeah, that's right. Really comfortable well. having the spotlight on me, no issues. So I really thrived in that environment and uh, I loved creating drinks, explaining the nerdy reasons why I put certain things together or a historical fact about this or that. And, um, and yeah, I was one of those people who got those giant checks. It was just bizarre. <laughs> did you have yeah. a signature cocktail? I did have a couple of signature cocktails, actually. My signature cocktail, I think you can still order it at Est in Sydney, the beautiful restaurant on the first floor of uh, the establishment building. It's called the Celestial. And um, it was, you know, the cosmopolitan is of the ground and the city and Celestial was like the idea that 
if it was the opposite. And my goal was to get women off vodka cocktails. I was just like, I'm so sick of making Cosmopolitans. Uh, hello, mid-90s. And, um, oh, well, this was actually early 2000s by now. But I wanted to bring gin to being like a really, I mean, it's a beautiful spirit. And now there's like a bazillion gins and yes. everywhere. I'd like to think I may have like laid the foundations for that a little bit. Um, and and so it was kaffir lime, elderflower, fresh apple, fresh lime and, uh, and Plymouth gin it was. And it was just, it's a beautiful drink. It's really gorgeous. Yeah, beautiful. And so it's nice that it's still available somewhere. Absolutely. 15 so years later. Mm. You were getting big checks? Yeah. Where do you go from there? <laughs> so, of course, I'm, I don't sit still. I don't go, okay, so this is what I do now. I go, what's next? And uh, it's the curse of the entrepreneurial spirit, but it's a, a blessing as well. And I was working for the wonderful Maryvale Group. And so I said, look, why can't I replicate the kind of level of service that we give here? We were winning all sorts of awards, best bar, best cocktail bar, best cocktail list, best team, you know, all the awards you could win, we used to win. And so why can't I do that for the whole group? So I started doing group training management sort of stuff. And uh, and then there wasn't quite enough work for me to do just that for Maryvale at the time. Now they've got like 70 venues and, and of course that would be possible. But I then wanted to consult and, and help other venues as well. And so I became a consultant. And it was in that time that I had a baby, Seb, which who's now nine and a half, nearly 10. And that was when I had done some work around food and additives and gluten because I realised there was a huge link for me with gluten and tonsillitis that I get got several times a year and then quick gluten all of a sudden not. Then when I had Seb, just before we had the baby shower, people give you all the well-meaning gifts to set up the um, nursery and I thought, well, I've become pretty good at reading the food labels, so why don't I have a little crack at just, just making sure what's in this stuff and before I use it on the beautiful, clean, pristine bub that I'm bringing into the world. And I was like, oh, great. It's 90% petroleum-based products. And it's endocrine disruptive, like hormone fiddling yeah. kind of ingredients. And I was just horrified. So all of this was sort of uh, this knowledge. I was starting to then read books and grab a hold of any information I could find. And it started to kind of lose the lust, the luster of consulting and helping build new bars and create cocktail lists and train staff really just became very unshiny, quite dull. I was like, this is what's exciting. I could change the world with this stuff. It really just <gasps> it lit me up in a way that uh, I hadn't been lit up before. And so I remember very distinctly calling my sister over because she was more techy. She had been working in digital and that was something that our entire family would just go, so how's work, Nat? And she would talk for half an hour and we'd be like, yeah, I've got no idea what that's about. <laughs> but you're excited. <laughs> yeah, and I was it excited. sounds amazing. It sounded good. <laughs> so I knew she knew about the internet and blogs and all the things. So I was like, can you just help me like come up with just something so I can start writing down some of the things I'm finding out and see, um, you know, for family and friends that are asking. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get you on WordPress and do all those sorts of things. And and so that's how it started. And over time, because I was one of the earlier people to know about things, I got to do workshops at local community centres and really that's how the whole, that's how the whole career has panned out so yeah. far. But the common thread has always been exciting people, challenging people to do 
better than they were yesterday uh, and however that might look across industries. That's always what pushes my buttons. And it sounds like also that that drive from a technical point of view to really understand it. Mm. Uh, that, I always need to dive. understand just enough. Like I do go quite nerdy, more than most, but it's never the technical that inspires me. It's the teaching that inspires. It's the actually putting into practice. So I'll learn whatever I need to learn to help people understand stuff. So the education. The education always is my favourite. So I'm going to get you to educate in a moment, but I do have one (laughs) more question around, and it is that navigating between family and business. So Mm. Seb, as you said, is Mm. nine and a half. And so, you know, particularly throughout that story, kind of started through being pregnant. And so he's been a part of Mm. uh, this this change in, and yeah. growth and and family. How have you navigated that for yourself, or what have you found? What do you find is working now? Is probably the better question. Do you mean like in balance, in balancing yeah. work? As much as that word mm, is I different know. for different people. Yeah, it is. But, but I do think, like everything's on a pendulum, right? Yeah. And if you go really far in one way, like if you've got a massive deadline, or you're doing a big website rebrand, or something huge that does demand intense concentration in one area, then yes, naturally, there's a bit less family time and there's a bit less lovey-dovey cuddles in the morning and things, but the pendulum swims back. You need to fill that cup up at some point. You can never be permanently out of whack. You need to then have that beautiful weekend away where no one thinks about work and everyone gets loved up again. And Do you so, consciously put that into yes. play? Oh, yes, so, absolutely. That, that, uh, I think sometimes we go, oh, yeah, I'll do that later, but mm. if it's not in the calendar, if it's not scheduled, that's certainly the thing that I'm finding. 100%. I call it scheduling joy. And if I look at my calendar and I don't have a girly catch up or some family time, or we haven't put in a movie picnic dinner for ourselves at some point during the week, it literally goes in the diary. It has to happen. Scheduling joy. Mm. I love that. Yeah. That's it was beautiful. just, someone asked me about, um, it, what were they asking me about? I think it wasn't this. It was something else. It was self, a feeling uh, like of loved up in general in life because so much is this sense of have to, have to, have to, got to get that done, got to get. And like, no, we don't actually. What, let's regain a bit of control. Let's tell our life who's boss here. Let's look at it objectively and go, it makes no sense to not have even a phone call with a girlfriend this week. I mean, that just makes no sense to let a whole week go by where you wouldn't just have a, a debrief, a, a, you know, that just, and the same with your family. It makes no sense to not see your family for weeks on end. So we have to schedule it in and we have to remind ourselves that they're awesome. Otherwise we can forget. And Give that's when families permission. can break down. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything throughout that, that balance and looking at that, that you've had to or needed to, even for a period of time, let go of? Is there, has there been things that you've had to um, reassign? Yeah, I've had to actually just realise you can't get that much done, that no human is capable of doing some of the things I think I'm capable of doing in a week. <laughs> Sad Especially as when that goal might be. change the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it I will literally <laughs> work 24-7. There's, n- there's no end to the work that needs doing. But that's true of all of us in our, all of our lives, no matter what we're doing. They're, and I remember my very first boss, Pauline, uh, back in cosmetics days in the office, she would see me working till six, seven at night, 
crept, like she would just ask me how long I was at the office the night before and I'd say, oh, not too late. Was it past seven? Yeah, just a bit. And she would say, you have to consciously finish a day. All that work will still be there tomorrow. It's all good. It's not going anywhere. And no one's going to judge you for not having done it. If you haven't finished by six, there's you've got to go home and just pick it up the next day. And it was a great lesson early on. And I find if I go off kilter for too long, like I said, there are always going to be peaks and troughs of busy when you have certain deadlines and that's fine. No one needs to feel guilty about let's not add more guilt for actually wanting to be really great when we need to switch it all on. But at the same time, to recognise that we need periods in our lives where we just pack it away and hang out with the people we love. Seth Godin, who's probably the most prolific author on the planet, mm-hmm. but he had a beautiful blog post out probably about three or four years ago now. But it, always, that, it comes to mind in, in what you're talking about because he talks about that we now need to dance on the edge of unfinished. Mm. So gone are the, and I'm not sure it was ever really there, but if you think of kind of the factory days, you literally could not work yeah. when you left work. Yeah. Like you just couldn't. <laughs> it wasn't possible. <laughs> wasn't possible, yeah. whereas now the convenience of it means that it's completely possible and yeah. so done is never done. Mm. And so this concept of, yeah, just dancing on the edge of unfinished, it's mm. never going to be this human drive, just, well, I just want to get this bit and then this bit and then this bit. It's so true. Okay I don't. I didn't read that one, but I, I just love everything Seth says, and that is so spot on. And we have to recognise that things have changed. That's. I think that's the big thing because our biology wants us to work until it's done. We have to say, actually, the framework for work has changed, and therefore, the new way of doing things is to never actually really be done. And yeah. that's okay. And to kind mm. of put our neurochemicals back yeah, yeah. in their place that yeah. says, I just want to wrap this up. It's yeah. like, yeah, well, actually, let's go wrap up. And, uh, you know, whether that's the scheduling, the joy, and actually think shifting so. some of those thinking and, and focuses. And on shifting thinking, like imagine if we had an uncomfortable or an anxious moment where we remembered there's a meeting at three o'clock that you have to prepare for and that you haven't, and that's the anxiety that comes over you. Imagine if you breathe through that feeling uh, in the way that psychologist Dr. Joan Rosberg talks about that 90 seconds, and you just breathe through the discomfort and go, I'm really looking forward to preparing for that, and then just pop into your diary quickly and put 1.30 to 2.30, meeting prep. And, you know, so then you know that you've placed some time and you just let it go. Little shifts in in thinking, I think, are really going to help us through this new never-finished landscape. Breathing and, mm. and scheduling it in, it's one of the biggest things that I, I try to do, but often talk to people about. Still learning. And even Me when too. you're going one to two, it <laughs> yeah. could be one to 10 plus yeah. one. Yeah. And, you know, often <laughs> yeah. that is enough and breathing and just even self-talk to go, I've got this, mm. you know, the bit of prep is fine mm. and go in and, and trust ourselves in that moment. You also have an amazing podcast yourself. You've been doing that for a number of years and we were only talking off mic before we jumped on was almost kind of starting it before this wave of podcasting is everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Um, And you mentioned before it's hard to kind of choose your favourite in a lot of ways but I almost see and that a lot of what you've done is almost kind of doing your own university study mm. by sitting down with experts all around the world from a whole range of different areas around health, well-being, business, psychology. You mentioned this morning, you know, talking to people in whole in such different industries. Such different industries. What do you love about that process? 
I don't need to be the person who is the highly specialised expert in one area. I am a conduit for education and I've recognised that about myself probably about four years ago where everyone was like, you should become an environmental scientist or you should become a naturopath or you should really look into doing nutrition. Uh, And something just stopped me from enrolling every time. Like, what is that? Do you not think you can do it? I couldn't choose a course to save myself. I could not pick a favourite out of all of the things. And I thought, you know what? No, the, the world needs conduits and curators as much as it needs specialists. And we all need to work together to bring good, true information to people. So I think what really pushes my buttons is that I get to tap into all these incredible minds who have deep dived down the darkest of rabbit holes in one tiny area and then bring that as a piece of an overall puzzle to everybody and show people where that fits in the puzzle. That's what I love to do. And I think when we all realise we don't all need to be good at the same things or we don't need to feel inadequate just because someone knows something more than us about something uh, and instead see that it can become this incredible piece of a much bigger conversation. That's what I love about interviewing all these incredible different... They inspire me so much. And, And I just... I see little lights go on for myself as I think about our community when I'm interviewing people. Oh, my gosh, those people are going to love this or that person's going to get so much, oh, that's going to help that person's daughter that I was speaking to in the Facebook group the other day. So I see all these people with all these issues, almost like a matrix of like ones and zeros coming at me and I like spit it out the other end. I just love being able to do that. And I think the more I talk to people, the more I realise there is not one answer for anyone. There's not one pill, there's not one diet, there's not one way of building a house. There's not one anything for any one person or every person that's going to be the right way. And to help keep things about thriving in the grey, I think, is one of the other areas of motivation for me to make it such a broad conversation. You know, you keep getting told to niche it down. I'm like, you know what? Nah, that's not for me. Uh, And the number one piece of feedback I get is I love the variety of topics. For me, so. the niche is the the curiosity of all of us, mm. that, it, that it does need that variety. And it, uh, your podcast is a beautiful gift to to your community and we'll put all the links in because there's not a single one that I've listened to that I haven't walked away with a, oh, I'm going to go and do that. Oh, well, that's yay. not the... <laughs> so there's a real practicality as yeah. well as understanding your guests and, and their expertise and their yeah. knowledge. Yeah, oh, I research and I read their books. I do everything. And people are like, wow, it was such a good conversation. And like, you know, if you l- look behind the scenes of this mass movement of podcasts, for example, you literally have people who send 20 questions to be asked and then the other person asks the 20 questions, they answer them. So it's like a press interview. And press interviews can be great if you're writing a quick uh, review or an article. But I, I really want to bring like the, the juice of their work to people. You can't do that if you just go through the motions of a script the beauty of this platform. That's part of why I, I love it. I love sitting yeah. down with guests who are so used to radio interviews and just doing their, their yeah. 60 second grab. And then all of a sudden they're going, oh, you're asking about me and we've got time. And yeah, I know. <laughs> then the you get into bits. the juicy stuff. And yeah. that's, the, that's the vulnerability and realness that mm. I think really connects with people that also helps prompt change and motivation to, to do that next thing. Yeah. So coming back to change. Mm. <laughs> Health, people, planet, uh, education is your thing. 
want to talk a little bit about health at home. Mm-hmm. What are, of all of the things that you've researched and all of the things that you know, yeah. where do you see the biggest return on investment for someone's health? If they're listening, tuning in, going, look, it sounds great, looking up the community, I'm ready to be a part of it. Are there four to five key things that come to mind yes. that you think if they can just to start there? And then the ripple might flow from there. Yeah, okay, great. So number one would be to do an audit of synthetic fragrances you have in your home. By that I mean your scented candles, synthetic scented reeds, plug-in air fresheners, fresh air systems, most hilarious product name I've ever heard in my life, (laughs) open a window. Um, And uh, (laughs) uh, things like your... um, deodorizers that people might use in the ironing of things or a fabric softener or a really stinky, it currently might feel like that's in a good way, but promise soon it's not going to feel like that's in a good way. Washing powders and things like that. Box them all up and put them in the garage for two weeks. You don't have to get rid of them yet, uh, but do this challenge. Just get rid of them all out of your home and just go pick up a fragrance-free washing powder from the supermarket just to tide you over while you're doing the experiment. And then, don't, don't replace them with anything. You're not don't replace them. With, we're just putting we're them in the garage. We're just doing an audit and removing them and then we're going to bring them back in two weeks, plug everything in, put it back on the wall, light the candles, get the air freshener happening, fabric softener, the whole lot and see how you feel about it coming back in in one big hit. And what that does for so many people is for the first time in our lives, we connect to what is foreign and shiny and new and sparkly and what is good and true. Because good and true is just regular fresh air, maybe some essential oils if you want to uh, diffuse a few of those. Um, and and things like lovely eucalyptus and lemon smells in your washing powder instead of spring fresh flowers that smell nothing like a bunch of spring fresh, fresh flowers actually smell. And people report headaches, migraines, instant hay fever, people who had never reacted to these things in a way that they understood a connection before because they just thought they were people who got headaches or migraines a lot or had a lot of hay fever um, or had a lot of asthma, um, even eczema. Uh, So it's really just the most powerful, powerful experiment you can do if you've never thought about any of this stuff before. Just to help you go, whoa, that really does have a profound negative effect on me. And I no longer recognise those foreign smells as something that is a lovely thing to perfume my home with. Because what's behind those foreign smells is unfortunately uh, a plasticizer compound, a chemical called a phthalate, which is part of a group of chemicals. But the phthalates are there to make the fragrances stick and last a really long time. So you know that way when you can hug a friend at the gym mm, and then like around. five hours later, your hair sort of whiffs past your head and and you can smell their perfume still or you get the hand-me-down clothes from friends and you smell their fabric softener even though you've washed it four or five times after getting those hand-me-downs. That's the phthalate doing its job. Unfortunately, its job in our bodies is also to disrupt our endocrine systems and it's particularly affecting our men and men don't really think they're part of this conversation but unfortunately um, they are. 
when we, you talk about fertility now, it's 40% men's issues are impacting uh, couples who can't conceive easily. So um, it's impacting their sperm, it's impacting unborn baby boys' genital formation, and it's all there in the scientific research. So it's mind-boggling how this stuff isn't front-page news. Mm. Instead, we're talking about, you know, some stupid thing one of our politicians have said today and, like, ba-ra-ra. And then getting marketed these things. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's great. And then, yeah, then then the newspapers support themselves with advertising from these companies selling us this stuff. So So that's my number one thing. Mm. So that's, um, we're absorbing that through senses. Through through our skin, through through our lungs. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, it's just the biggest win you can get on the board is either going fragrance-free or natural fragrance. So rather than trying to then step people through four or five completely different things, let's keep it really easy for everybody because that tends to be something so many people have in their homes. And then from there, once you've got the awareness, you can take next steps. Mm. So I love that challenge. You're not even throwing it out. No, just no, go no, no. I want you to up, just actually raise your awareness because... Yeah. For me, I'll, I'll never forget going to my mum's house out after ditching all that stuff at our place. And mum's ditched it all too. She's like full hippie greenie now. It's fabulous. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I went to her place and she had a wash going, uh, the dryer going, so the fabric softener was kind of pumping air all through the house and I was winded. I was literally like, what the? And it, it was the same brand as I would have had because, of course, you move out and you do everything your mum does. Well, I did. Yes. As a good girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was really quite shocking. And I thought, well, how can you go through 13 years of one of the best schools in Sydney, further four years of university and other things, and uh, in all those 17 years of formal education, to never have thought about what I put on me or in me or surrounded with me around my home and how it impacted my health or the planet. Like, it's crazy how this isn't part of our education. Same with tax. Like, our kids are coming out of school. They have no idea how to financially plan their lives. I had to learn it myself. Yes. And it yeah. took me till I was 35 to actually do it in a responsible way. So yeah. And there's some really big gaps. Permission to take yeah. responsibility for really it too, which gaps. is also the approach that I love in the way that you're doing is is to just run these experiments, mm. ask the questions yourselves and yep. see how you feel, how your family might react or people mm. might feel as they come into play. Mm. So beautiful challenge. Box everything up. Is there anything else that you would kind of go stage, stage yeah. two? So stage two, I would have a think about whether you feel well at better at home or better when you're away from home. Because I've been through something called mould illness. It's not a recognised illness in this country yet, but hopefully will be with the National Parliamentary Inquiry that happened this year, where a quarter of the population can't see mould as a toxin, so it just builds up. We don't build antibodies to it and reject it and, um, you know, detox it out. And mould and water damage building, especially if you're on the east coast of Australia, there's this huge concern around humidity or, um, you know, people who run air conditioning units and they never get cleaned out or serviced. People are horrified to learn you should do that every six months. And uh, and so mould is a really big one. And often if you're someone who's affected by mould, you'll 
feel really crappy. Maybe you'll have resistant weight loss. Maybe you'll have a bit of brain fog in the first few early years of exposure. But you'll always feel the million bucks when you're away for more than a couple of weeks. You'll feel like you're yourself again, like your hormones work again, like everything's better. And then you come home and everything kind of goes a bit blah again. It's not just because of the holiday. It could actually be because of your home. So I think one of the most powerful things people can do is realise that our homes can affect us positively or negatively. And uh, if you think oh, there's something about that home, the musty smell, something really bugs me or I've got funny kind of twitches or tremors or palpitations and you're 30 plus years old and no one can find anything wrong with you, think about the health of your home. And um, it's a big one. It's not one of those like sweet little, oh, switch from like using perfume Mm. to essential oils. I mean, anyone can read a blog and do that on the internet. So I prefer to actually help people with like massively game-changing stuff if they haven't thought about it before and I get the opportunity to talk with you now and share that information. So I would find a building biologist and get them in and get them to test your home for mould or high EMFs. A lot of people who work from home complain of having a fuzzy head and it can be as simple as moving a modem behind a really solid wood structure or something to just lower the amount of frequency that's being beamed right at you to make you feel great again. So never underestimate the power of your home to make you feel well or crap and hire a building biologist, uh, which you can readily find online in your area. I I actually, unbeknownst to me, I actually did that about three or four years ago. I thought oh, I was hiring you? a feng shui oh, person yes. to come and have a look well, at the house. Well, often, fe- often building biologists have a feng shui qualification. background. Yeah. And she absolutely did. So mm. she came with this kind of science approach. I'm like, oh, okay. Not that feng shui isn't, but but it just kind of, she had this environmental component. So she she was looking at air quality, noise, um, EMS, emissions, yeah. uh, as well as kind of mould and, and water and where it was kind of hanging out. Mm. So, yeah. And what did they end up doing for you? Yeah, so she gave me a really, really thorough report. Um, that side of it wasn't too bad except for the microwave, mm. which I ended up unplugging and not using <laughs> anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for a whole range of other reasons. And um, so, yeah, from an environmental point of view, that was all okay. We have a very, we live in on the Gold Coast, so we have a very open house, glass. Awesome. Um, the and tiles, so it's a lot of air, a lot of kind of flow and kind of space through. So it was actually more just around um, the feng shui side of it, mm. so entry points and coming in and in and out and that sort of stuff as well. So, so we actually no longer use our front door because it's actually technically not, the, the opening of the house. Oh, wow. Just the way it is. So around yeah. the corner is actually much more of a cool. welcoming kind of part. Um, and did you intrinsically start to feel that once it was pointed yeah, out to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and in actual fact, and partly why I talked about pleasure and pain when she said, um, if, you, if that door's opening, you're actually inviting criticism into your life. So I went, no, let's not do no, that. So, <laughs> true or not true, I'm just leaving the front door shut. <laughs> once it's in your head. <laughs> and we planned a lemon tree right next to the front door, so we're all good to go. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Around abundance. Inviting part. fresh lemons for a good gin cocktail yeah, instead. Yeah. It's not that hard. <laughs> the feedback was was really inobtrusive, you know, intru- mm. not intrusive, but it is that sense of knowledge is power, mm, and totally. when you know it, and, and it's amazing how you can move a few things around in your home, or just fix a gutter properly, or you know, tiny things can have a huge effect. And so many people just don't realise the connection between the health of their home and their own health. 
And I think that's a huge one. Ask the questions, mm. get educated. Yeah. You you put out a regular newsletter, which I know then flows into your blog. The one you put out in the last week was talking about free. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. I read and I wanted to bring up with you. Not only is it topical, but I, I think it's also a really important message that, and I think your your line was, just because it's free doesn't mean it's yippee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can and you unpack what that meant by, for you? Okay, so not free as in doesn't cost you anything monetarily, but something free. And I always, in my talks, when I'm talking about um, additives and, and food and helping people move from products to produce as a bit of a sliding scale of focus in the most basic sense of what we need to change, I always say, you know, people get really excited switching to organics and maybe trying gluten-free for their family to see if that sort of shifts something for them. And by the way, gluten's not evil. I don't believe it is. It just doesn't work for me and quite a few people. So that's the only reason I, I, I name drop the gluten. But I always say, and just, you know, think about swapping from your conventional cheesy puffs or like cheese and bacon balls or all those sorts of really processed high um, fake flavour snacks and going to gluten-free organic cheesy puffs because they do exist and you can get organic Oreos these days. Yes. That does not make these things a great choice. So we often see catchphrases on the front of labels, something, something free or free from, and then it says parabens, BPA, all these things. So you think, oh, this must be a great choice. And that marketer is very smart. They're trying to tap into the fact that we just want to tell ourselves a story about the type of person we are. We're a good person. We choose well. And so they know by putting all those free froms that we're going to feel that way and therefore be more likely to buy that product. But what doesn't happen when we choose something because it's something free is we don't actually do the work to find out what exactly is in it, you know? And so I always say flip that bottle over and read the ingredient list. That is the only place you're going to find the truth. And when it comes to cleaning products, which often don't legally have to list uh, their ingredients, that's my number one alarm bell. If someone doesn't have the confidence to tell you what is in their product and you have to flip through on the website and then try and find a PDF to download the safety data sheet, like if they make it that hard, then It's not going to be good. <laughs> it's not going to be great because <laughs> all the good guys, I can tell you right now, are listing their ingredients front and centre, feeling very confident and happy for everybody to know what's in there. So spend the time to actually Spend the time. And often what you end up doing, you know, is you stop feeling like you need to try the newest, greatest thing all the time. You actually just find a couple of great brands that really suit you and you just cut out the noise. You cut out the consumer noise. So many people keep asking me about all these new brands who did the course five years ago who were wrapped with the first and like you still need to do the consumer work. You're still feeling like a consumer. You do not need to invest. If you love your moisturiser now, stop looking at moisturisers. Like actually just sit with how lovely it is the thing that you use. Which makes it freer. Oh, so much Imagine easier. all you that decision-making space and you don't have to analyse all these labels and, oh, my gosh, it's like it's like getting your chemical maze app when you first learn about additives and so you start wanting to look at the 911 number and the 951 and all of these things and then you start to think, why don't I just go to the farmer's market and get some fruit, veg, meat, <laughs> eggs, nuts, seeds and a really lovely... Um, sourdough bread like that is you don't even need to do anything other than to 
just chat to the farmer. Yeah. yeah. So much easier. We have changed that. But then I've certainly heard that whole concept of just shopping on the outside of the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you challenge yourself just to do that. And exactly. See, and see what happens. Oh my gosh, it's so much easier. Or... You save so much time and decision fatigue. Yeah. And coming back to that marketing piece, it's also to understand that they are doing their job, rightly mm. or wrongly. And the story I remember coming to mind, I remember um, listening to a, a brand that was in that kind of um, breakfast cereal kind of market and they realised there was a certain line that wasn't selling and they put the word superfood on it and it, it kind of went through the roof. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I remember them even kind of saying, and, you know, it wasn't that it was wrong. Mm. There were ingredients in there that we, you know, term... Maybe there was some dried blueberries or, or whatever. Yeah, But that demonstrates the very thing that you're talking yeah. about is that those, those words and that terminology have really beautifully aligned into, well, I'm doing the right thing, this will be good for me, mm. without that, that stopping and just actually checking well, I can take control of that and yeah. let me actually have a look. And when you say superfood, what's so super? Yeah. And, um, I know you've had a conversation with Dr. Libby Weaver, but I've heard uh, heard her say the most superfood is broccoli. It's yeah. just cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to put a label on it. Yeah. But it's one of the best things you can put in your body. So, again, it, that's the thing that kind of comes to mind for me around that those kind of labels and, and marketing and totally. concepts. And I think in that, is coming back to uh, nature's marketing calendar. That was a huge one for me to shift away from feeling like I needed to watch the ads and buy the cool new thing to just getting excited about the seasons again. And yeah, cherries are back. And, you know, like, and then you just stuff yourself full of cherries for a month and then they're gone. Yeah. And then you kind of sick of the cherries at the end or sick of the pumpkin soup by the end of winter. But then you miss it just enough to get excited about it again the next time it comes around. And to plug into nature's marketing calendar uh, is just one of the most exciting things you can do. And to not feel like you should be able to make a pear tart in, in January or, you know, because that's the recipe you want to make. It's actually, no, you're going to have to put some berries in it if you want to make a tart right now because <laughs> that's what we've got at the shops. Yeah, mm. and, but doesn't it? And I was only in the shops the other day with um, these beautiful orange oranges and you look at them and they're like, from the US? It's not orange <laughs> season. <laughs> I know. I love it. It looks amazing, but I can't put my hand on it because no. it's not... Uh, and you not know that there would have had to be a lot of nasty things done to that orange to come into Australia with our very stringent law around pests and things, there would have been some pretty nasty treatments. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I want to touch on, and you mentioned it before, around uh, the impact on men, but particularly, I guess, this fertility mm. space and place, which, um, and it's probably almost okay to even use that word crisis in a lot of ways mm -hmm. in terms absolutely. of where people are struggling to, to fall pregnant and then the messaging around that and the connection with, with IVF. I know mm. it's something that you're particularly passionate about. Absolutely. What are you learning and uncovering in some of these conversations? Yeah, so I actually decided to create a course a couple of years ago called Preconception Ninja, like getting people ready for that horizontal tango and hopefully success. Uh, and because I was horrified to learn that one in six couples have trouble uh, conceiving, and I was also horrified to learn that this was not a, just a female issue, but it was affecting our men as well, especially then looking at who comes to my talks or reads my book or shares it on Instagram or does any of those. It's 99% women. So or no, I'd, I'd even hazard a guess at 
97%. (laughs) And and I think it's really important that men become a part of the conversation. And the way that we do that is to help them join the dots more effectively, that that uh, Rexona spray that they think they need to smell good and not be stinky is actually hazardous to their health. And the the phone that they put in their front pocket is significantly diminishing their sperm quality and quantity. Uh, And so there are some really easy things that blokes can do, uh, but because this tends to be a hippie woman thing, uh, it doesn't feel very sexy for the guy to get excited about all of this. And I actually, I'll pop a link to a webinar that I did, which was literally about helping our partners understand why this is important to them as well. The hand-holding in that conversation is important. But the problem is what I've noticed and why I think the education piece is so important is women, and rightly so, recognise and realise really early on the piece, much earlier than the average guy, that there are some things in our environment or in our products in the shopping basket that aren't good for us. They're on the shelf, sure, but you find out about chemical lobby politicians being able to be bought to, you know, fund their campaigns, etc. And while that vested interest stuff is still happening in our political system, we still end up with things that aren't necessarily safe or at least have preliminary research that suggests they might be quite harmful if we could get some more research behind them. For me, that's just a great little red flag of caution. I go, okay, I'll wait to find out what's going on there before I use that. Not, it's toxic, not scaring people, but yeah, let's just wait for that one. So um, I feel like I'm kind of skirting around the issue, but suffice it to say that if we can get more men on board, uh, we need to meet them where they're at and with what pushes their buttons. So if you've got a 27-year-old guy who's been with his now wife but girlfriend, you know, four years prior, and they're thinking about having a baby, this is a really exciting time for a guy to get lit up by this stuff. Watch a couple of documentaries together. Make it nice and fun. Get the wine and cheese out and make it a loving moment instead of screaming at your guy and saying, can't use that, that's toxic. How helpful is that to anyone? It's not helpful. It just drives a stake through between your um, energies. And I think we need to meet people where they're at and take them along the journey because what women tend to do is we're a member of 50 Facebook groups, we've done four courses, we watch all the docos and we all talk as women in the village. We still do that. And then we shout out it's toxic to our guy and get upset when they call us a hippie. So we actually need to get smarter, more literate, actually being able to provide a case for why that might not be such a great choice. That part of the journey, you've done the three months worth of work and you want them to understand it in three seconds. That's right. It's kind of like breaking up with someone and you've premeditated the whole thing. You know exactly whose house you're going to be at and then which flatmate you're going to go to and all the things. But the breaker breaker up E is just told their whole life's going to change in a second and they have to just go along with it and be happy. And I know we're not breaking up with people, but I think the parallel is quite similar. And what also comes to mind, it's the intentionality, even when you talked about the community, it's actually mm. coming in with that loving space, coming exactly. in with a, yeah. an invitation to let's just explore this and what might this mean and, yeah. you know, could we do our own two-week experiment yeah. and just totally. see or what's the challenge that might look around yeah. that, but it's an important invitation to... Yeah, invitation and getting people to be curious instead of chastising and preaching. That just doesn't work. So education is clearly a core part of what you're continuing to Mm -hmm. do. 
Is the documentary on on the cards? There is one on the cards. Yes, I have bought the uh, domain name and I am costing out currently a documentary. Exciting. Very excited. Exciting. I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what, what comes up for you? What does that mean for you? For me, it means listening to the little voice that's calling you to do the next big thing. I don't think that voice turns up unless there's some truth to it. And, uh, and I think if you continually evolve yourself to your next big thing, whatever that calling feels like and looks like for you, then you're living a life of trust uh, in the process and trust that you're on the right path and doing it also in quite an intentional way because you then take steps to make things happen. And it doesn't mean you need to become well-known or an author or it's going to look so different for everybody. But if you feel called to do something, uh, you can't be afraid to step into a, a, a position of power in your own life around that. Thank you for all that you do. And thanks for making the time. Oh, thanks for having me. It was amazing. (laughs) We did do it. I loved it. Thanks, Alex. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.